I'm Dennis Metzler, and welcome to The Charge. Today, we are with Dr. Stephen Cowan. He is the editor of the book, uh, Problems of Epistemology and Metaphysics, an Introduction to Contemporary Debates, published in 2020. So, um, Dr. Cowan, thank you so much for joining us today. Hi, Dennis. Uh, Thanks for having me. All righty. So the book is uh, really helpful in dealing with apologetic questions, uh, philosophical questions, uh, epistemology and metaphysics and all sorts of stuff. So um, first, if you could give us some personal background about your own church tradition, uh, your theology, your spirituality, where you've been and where you're at now. Uh, Sure. I I was uh, born um, and raised uh, in the Southern Baptist Church. Probably my earliest memories are, are being in church in the Southern Baptist Church in my hometown in down in Mississippi, and um, got saved as us Baptists like to say uh, when I was twelve uh, there, and um, uh, discipled early on uh, in, in the church, and then I got very active and involved in um, what was at that time called the Baptist Student Union uh, at the University of Southern Mississippi, where I went to college. Uh, I think it's called Baptist Collegiate Ministries now. Uh, and um, fr- uh, from there, uh, while, while I was in college, I um, uh, kind of had a second conversion experience, you might say, to uh, Reformed uh, soteriology, uh, a.k.a. Calvinism. Uh, not not terribly popular in Southern Baptist circles uh, these days, but uh, but there are, there are a few more of us than some people uh, like to think, but... <laughs> <laughs> But um, anyway, so that's kind of where I, I'm at uh, theologically. Um, uh, is, that, is that enough? I'm not going to probably go into a lot more detail if you want me to. Yeah, that's fine. And I already forgot to say that you are a professor of philosophy and religion at Lincoln Memorial University. Mm-hmm. So, yeah. all righty. Okay, so let's get into the book. So if you could um, just say a little about the purpose of the book and the mm-hmm. way it's structured and um, are the there's a bunch of authors because it's an edited volume. So are right. these authors all Christians, or so a little background? Uh, yeah, no, they're not. They're not all Christians. The the book uh, was designed to be uh, an introduction to key philosophical problems uh, in the areas of epistemology, which is the uh, the discipline in philosophy that deals with questions related to knowledge and how we know things, uh, and uh, and in metaphysics. The, the, philosophical area that deals with the nature of reality. And uh, these are two key areas in, uh, in philosophy. And, and so the book is designed to be an introduction to uh, those areas of philosophy. And it's structured in a, what I call a point-counterpoint format, where you have two scholars debating both sides uh, of the various issues that are addressed in the, in the book. And uh, some of the authors are Christian, some are, some are not, some are atheists, some are agnostics. Uh, and it's not just the book where Christians and non-Christians debate. Some of the, author, some of the chapters have two Christians uh, debating each other on uh, topics that where even Christians might differ on certain, uh, certain issues in, in philosophy. But uh, the book was designed uh, for a general college audience, not necessarily for a Christian school although I think it could be used in a Christian school, and I would certainly hope it would be. Uh, but I, I use it here in my, some of my classes here at Lincoln Memorial um, in my Intro to Philosophy classes and, and uh, uh, maybe some upper-level classes as well. Um, the first third of the book, or two-thirds of the book, actually deal more with epistemological questions, and then the last third or so of the book deals with uh, some key issues in metaphysics. Excellent. Okay, well, let's uh, dive right in. And in the, the first chapter, um, the question is, are humans able to truly have knowledge mm-hmm. or not? I mean, it seems like an obvious question, but people <laughs> debate this. So um, uh, fill us in on the, some more details and also tell us about skepticism. Uh, sure, sure. Uh, so, yeah, can we, can we have any knowledge? That's, that's one of the most basic questions in the area of epistemology. That's, that's for sure. And um, it might be helpful to start off with a definition of what we mean when we use the word knowledge. Uh, Philosophers generally say uh, that knowledge is uh, roughly justified true belief. That's uh, kind of a very basic definition for knowledge. 
Uh, and so uh, with that definition, I would say, this is my opinion, not necessarily everybody in the book, of course, uh, that, yeah, we can have knowledge. We can have real knowledge. Uh, but the skeptic, of course, uh, is the one who says, uh, no, uh, we can't have knowledge uh, because most of our beliefs are subject to various um, skeptical hypotheses. Uh, for example, you know, the famous uh, uh, question that Descartes uh, asks in some of his early uh, works, the philosopher Rene Descartes, how do you know you're not dreaming right now, right? <laughs> You're seeing all these things. I'm seeing a computer screen in front of me, but can I be dreaming all this? Or maybe I'm being systematically deceived by, by, uh, by a demon to experience all these things. And I'm really just a, a brain in a vat or something, right? Or maybe I'm in the matrix and that movie, the famous movie, the matrix where everything is just a virtual reality being fed into my uh, mind from this malevolent computer, right? So, so, so the skeptic says that all these various uh, hypothetical scenarios are possible, and because they are possible, you can't rule them out uh, as being the case right now, and so we can't really know if any of our uh, current experiences are, are uh, real or true. And uh, so that's where uh, the skeptic comes from. Now, for what it's worth, uh, a lot of my philosophy students, intro philosophy students are often surprised to learn that most philosophers are not skeptics, although there are a handful uh, of them, like the one of the author in the textbook who, who defends skepticism. But, uh, but most philosophers are not skeptics. And this, the solution for, for, for most philosophers, Christian or otherwise, is uh, first of all to point out that the skeptic assumes that knowledge and justified belief requires having absolute certainty and being able to rule out as impossible some of those uh, those skeptical hypotheses that we just talked about. But rather, we should instead uh, embrace uh, something called fallibilism, uh, which is the view that knowledge doesn't require certainty. I can know uh, that something is true, even if I can't be absolutely certain uh, about it. As long as my belief is justified, have some good reasons to believe it, uh, and no reason not to believe it, uh, then I can legitimately claim to know it. So um, what does a skeptic say about a question like, do you know your wife's name? Do you know your <laughs> birthday? Do you know your phone number? How do they, how do uh, they deal with obvious reality? That's right. Yeah, well, right, right. Well, they're going to they're gonna, uh, say, okay, they may seem obvious to you. <laughs> but uh, the skeptic, the real hardcore skeptic is going to just come up with some kind of hypothetical scenario that would uh, that if that scenario were true would would call that knowledge claim into question. So how do I know my my wife's name is Rhonda? Let's say it is Rhonda. Uh, he might say, well, you know, you could have been created five minutes ago with uh, all the memories you have of Rhonda just hardwired into your brain, uh, and they're not real memories at all, right? So there's there you go. Right? So, so that's uh, you know, skeptic uh, may stick to his guns by coming up with some story like that, and of course. Uh, it's easy to think up uh, skeptical stories like that and, and come up with reasons to doubt what, uh, what we uh, uh, think we, we know uh, to be the case. Um, and, uh, you know, I hate being unfair to the authors of my book. In the, in the, in the book, we have authors on both sides. There's a skeptic who defends skepticism, and then uh, uh, his name is Marcus Lamanranta. Uh, and then the, the non-skeptic in the book is Michael Humer. Uh, he's at the University of Colorado, I believe. And um, he holds a view, which I share, and most philosophers share something similar to this. He calls it phenomenal conservatism, which simply says that a person is justified in believing uh, P, where P can be any proposition or statement about anything. You know, the sky is blue. My wife's name is Rhonda. Uh, today is, uh, is it Monday? I think it's Monday. Um, a person is justified in believing P if, one, uh, it seems to him that P is true. And two, he's got no strong reason to deny P. And as long as those conditions are met, you can claim to know P. Um, uh, no uh, skeptical hypotheses withstanding, right? Okay. And but within skepticism, though, there's two different um, branches, one more hardcore and one more mm -hmm. reasonable. What uh, Can you say a little bit about those? Uh, yeah, sure. Uh, there, yeah, even in the book, this, this comes up a little bit. 
one one view, a uh, much older version of skepticism known as uh, Pyrrhonian skepticism from an ancient philosopher named Pyrrho. He says we can't know anything at all, uh, nothing at all, uh, and that we need to uh, uh, not make any knowledge claims about anything. Not can, I can't even say that uh, my name is Steve or anything like that. I can't even uh, make statements about uh, what seems to me to be the case that I'm seeing a computer screen in front of me, for example. Uh, and uh, not very many, even skeptics today, there are some Peronian skeptics, but most skeptics today don't go this far because uh, it just seems to be an extreme. I mean, uh, the Peronian skeptic says, uh, essentially, I can't know anything at all. But then the question you can ask the Peronian is, well, do you know that? Do you know you can't know anything? And then the rug's kind of pulled out from under, at least in my opinion. Uh, the more common, uh, less extreme version of skepticism, which is still pretty severe, uh, is called Cartesian skepticism, which I've already been alluding to, uh, which traces back to Rene Descartes, the early modern philosopher, who basically is skepticism about what we call the external world, skepticism about our experience of the world, the things that we see, taste, touch, hear, and smell. Uh, but not about anything and everything. Uh, a Cartesian skeptic uh, will admit that we can know what we're currently experiencing. I can I can know that I'm experiencing a, what appears to be a computer screen, right? Uh, but what I can't know is whether it really is a computer screen or whether I'm dreaming this or whether I'm uh, in the matrix or something like, like that. All righty. Okay. So it's interesting. Okay. Uh, so in chapter two, are our beliefs justified by experience or are they justified by coherence? So you talk about foundationalism and coherentism. So yeah, yeah. more on that. Yeah. In, in my mind, this is a much more uh, interesting and maybe maybe fun uh, topic than, uh, than this, this topic about skepticism. But I guess, you know, everybody's got their own cup of tea, I suppose. But um, foundationalism is the view that all justified beliefs are ultimately traced back to and are based on what are called properly basic beliefs. Hmm. Uh, so what's that? A properly basic belief is a justified belief. That is a belief I'm, it's okay for me to hold uh, that's not justified by other beliefs. Uh, some things we believe are justified by other things we believe, or some beliefs are justified by other beliefs. So, for example, I um, uh, I, I believe that my wife uh, has just arrived home from shopping because I, um, uh, let's say, I hear her car pulling into the garage, right? So I have two beliefs there. I believe I hear her car pulling into the garage, and I knew she had gone shopping. So I, and when I hear that sound, I connect the, I, I form the belief that she's home from shopping. So one belief is derived from another belief. Uh, but not all beliefs seem to be that way. Some beliefs uh, are basic, that they don't seem to be derived from other beliefs. So, for example, uh, using that same example, I, I hear what seems to be her car pulling into the garage. Right? I, I hear a sound. Uh, that's not a belief. It's a, it's an experience, right? A, a, an audible experience. And so I form the belief that my wife's car has just pulled into the garage or I look out my window and I see a tree, uh, a pine tree outside my window. And, uh, based on that visual experience, I form the belief there's a tree outside my window. So some beliefs are, are basic in the sense that they, that they're not derived from or based on other beliefs. Uh, and some beliefs are non-basic. They they come from other beliefs. Foundationalism says that if you're going to have any justified beliefs at all, they ultimately have to go back to a foundation of basic beliefs, properly basic beliefs, beliefs that are basic and are themselves justified, justified by some experience of some kind, like like seeing something or hearing something, for for example. Um, or remembering, you know, memory beliefs are also can be seen as basic, right? I, uh, I have the belief that I had uh, a toast for breakfast. Why? Because I remember it, right? That's a basic belief based on a memory experience, for example, right? So foundationalism says you got to trace your beliefs back to uh, these foundational uh, basic beliefs uh, in order to be justified. Uh, the alternative view is called coherentism. And basically, coherentism is is the view that there are no basic beliefs, that all beliefs are non-basic and all beliefs get their justification 
uh, from standing in some kind of uh, relation, inferential relationship to other beliefs. So uh, every belief is uh, justified because it's deduced from or induced from or explained by some other belief you hold. So the coherentist sees our beliefs kind of like a web, like a spider's web, you might say, where all the strands are different beliefs and they're all interconnected. And any individual belief is justified by its place in the larger web, you might say. But there would be no basic beliefs to, to, that you have to trace your beliefs back to. That, that's coherentism. Uh, most philosophers, for what it's worth, uh, of course, you don't decide what's true by counting noses. Uh, I'm pretty sure you would know that. But most philosophers are foundationalists, um, inclu including me. Uh, but the coherentists uh, certainly have certainly have some of their, their their arguments, you might say. So, how is that relevant to uh, Christian theology, Christian belief, and apologetics? Uh, oh well, yeah, well, it, it could have, um, and this might take a whole topic all by itself, uh, discussion time. But um, whether you come down on this could um, help you decide what approach to apologetics that you take. Um, if you're a, a foundationalist like myself, you're going to probably be more inclined toward uh, a more classical or evidential approach to uh, apologetics, looking at historical evidences and maybe uh, evidences for the existence of God uh, in the, the cosmos and, and things like that. Uh, classic arguments for God's existence, uh, you might say, which I know we may get to that uh, a little bit later. Um, if you're a coherentist, you might be attracted to uh, a very different type of apologetics, maybe maybe a presuppositional approach to apologetics where you assume that Christianity is true and you simply answer objections uh, and just see Christianity as a coherent set of beliefs and just defend it against objections, but not offer a lot of what we might call positive evidences for it. I uh, hope that makes sense. All right. Okay, good. And in chapter three, um, the authors deal with uh, the grounds of knowledge. Do the grounds of knowledge have to be accessible to the knower? Oh, and yeah, yeah. so what does this have to do with internalism and externalism? Yeah, th this is one of the more technical topics in the book that um, you might sort of skip over. But <laughs> uh, but uh, it's one of the more difficult chapters, too. But that, that doesn't mean it's not Yeah, good we, we can be brief with this one. Okay, sure, sure. Okay. Well, in, internalism is the view that in order to have a justified belief or knowledge, you have to have internal access to your justifying grounds. In other words, you have to have some kind of awareness of what it is that justifies your beliefs and allows you to have knowledge. So, for example, I'll use the, the toast for breakfast example again, right? I, uh, I believe I had toast for breakfast and that's justified. That belief is justified because I remember it. I have access to my my memory that justifies my belief or if there's a tree outside my window i have access to my visual experience i can see it right and that justifies or, or that's that shows me that I, i'm aware of the grounds of my justification uh, externalism which is a much newer view uh, by the way this is the view that beliefs can be justified uh, without having this kind of internal access uh, that is a belief is justified so long as it's produced in the right way, regardless of whether I'm aware of how it's produced or whether it's, whether it is produced in, in the right way or whether I know it's produced in, in the right way. The most common form of externalism is called reliabilism. This comes up in the book. Uh, according to reliabilism, a belief is justified for a person if it's produced by a reliable belief forming mechanism or belief forming process. That's a big mouthful. But an example will, will do, right? Uh, if my belief is produced by my memory and my memory is reliable, and let's assume it is, then it's produced in the right way. Even if I'm not aware that I believe this because, I well, because of my memory or even if I know if my memory is reliable or not, right? So um, that's the, the basic debate between internalism and externalism. And uh, you might not see a whole lot of relevance for this for uh, Christian apologetics or anything like that, but... It does come up uh, in one of the later questions we're going to come to. It might even be the next question about um, whether religious beliefs uh, require evidence because uh, some of that debate turns on which of these two views, internalism and externalism, happens to be true. All righty. So, uh, yeah, it's chapter four. Uh, do religious beliefs require evidence? <laughs> it might seem obvious to some people. And, yeah. uh, and what exactly is evidentialism? Yeah. 
might be uh, best to go back and, and define evidentialism. Uh, in the um, in the early 20th century, century evidentialism is a, a view in epistemology that becomes uh, very dominant. Um, according to evidentialism, for a person to be rational in holding any belief, including religious beliefs, that belief must be based on evidence. And if it's not based on evidence, it's irrational to believe it. Uh, now, it's very important to point out here that um when the evidentialist talks about evidence, he's almost always uh, using that word in a particular way. He's talking about what's called propositional evidence, uh, as opposed to, let's say, experiential evidence. When I look outside mm. my window and see the tree, that's experiential evidence. Propositional evidence, that's, uh, you might just say, that's arguments, right? Uh, when I give an argument for something, that's propositional evidence, appealing to statements that lead to a conclusion, right? Um, but when evidentialism came about, or it was a dominant view in the early to mid 20th century, uh, arguments for God's existence were in disrepute, uh, going back to the philosophers David Hume and Immanuel Kant and uh, some others. Uh, most philosophers, even Christian philosophers, uh, didn't put a whole lot of stock in traditional arguments for God's existence. Mm -hmm. But then along comes a philosopher named Alvin Plantinga. I don't know what you know about him, but He's big in, in philosophy, believe me. Alvin Plantinga came along in the 60s and 70s, and uh, he um, argues that belief in God can be rational even if it's not based on propositional evidence. Rather, uh, belief in God can be properly basic. That takes us back to an earlier question, right? For Plantinga, you can have a, a, a justified, rational belief in God, Um simply in virtue of the fact that maybe you have an, ex an experience that you take to be an experience of God. You're in church and you're, and you're praying and you, and it, you seems to, you seem to feel the presence of God, let's say, or you have a, or you pray a prayer and that prayer is answered. And, and based on that, you form the belief or continue to believe that uh, God exists and is answering your prayer or is with you in church. And, uh, this kind of thing can provide a basis for a rational, justified belief in God and maybe other religious uh, truth claims uh, as as well. And uh, so for Plantinga and many other uh, followers of his, um, belief in God can be properly basic without and be justified without any kind of arguments. So the, the new question, though, that comes along is, does religious belief require any evidence at all, even non-propositional evidence or experiential evidence? And some theists, probably even including Plantinga now, if I'm reading him right, have been willing to go even further by adopting uh, externalism, which I talked about a moment ago. Externalism being the idea that you can have a justified belief and knowledge, even if you don't know that your belief is produced in a reliable way or you don't know what the source of it is. Uh, and so if you're an externalist, uh, and Plantinga is an externalist now, uh, you can... Uh, have a justified belief in God, as long as that belief is produced in the right way, even if you don't know that it's produced in the right way. So I so suppose mm -hmm. I find myself believing in God, and maybe I believe in God because, uh, as John Calvin would say in Plantinga following him, we have this faculty called the sensus divinitatis, right, which is a divine sense that in the right circumstances produces belief in God. I may not even know that I have this faculty, let's say, but suppose it's real. Uh, if that if my belief in God is produced by that faculty, even if I don't know that faculty exists, even if I don't know it's reliable, if that faculty is does exist and it is reliable, then my belief is justified, even if I don't know it. Uh, that's that sounds kind of wild, but uh, that's where, where the externalist like Plantinga would, would be on a, on a question like that. So he would say, do, do you have to have evidence for religious beliefs like belief in God? Plantinga would say no. Now, some uh, other theists, some Christians would say, well, uh, the externalist takes a little bit too far. and Maybe we do need some kind of evidence, even if it's just this experiential evidence that I'm, that I'm talking about. All right. Yeah, I interviewed uh, Kelly James Clark last oh, yeah. week about his book, God in the Brain. And mm -hmm. so there is a, a lot in there about uh, not giving into the demands of evidence. Right, right to justify our faith, our belief being rational. Mm -hmm. Right. And that's probably, I haven't, I haven't read uh, Kelly James Clark's latest book, but, uh, but that would be right in tune, I think, with where Plantinga is. And, 
and uh, Tom Sinor in, in my book who uh, defends a view very, very much like that. All right. That, yeah, that's interesting stuff. Okay, so moving into Chapter 5, the authors uh, discussed the question, can we know the truth about reality from science? Yeah. And they, they discussed the difference between uh, scientific realism versus scientific non-realism. Mm-hmm. So what's going on here? Yeah, yeah, this is a very important debate in the philosophy of science, maybe the most basic fundamental debate in the philosophy of science um, first of all, let me be clear on this term realism that you mentioned. Uh, the word realism without the adjective scientific is used in lots of different ways in philosophy, uh, in different areas of philosophy. But, but here we're talking about, uh, as you said, scientific realism versus scientific non-realism. So um, scientific realism is the, is the idea that well-confirmed scientific theories give us at least an approximately true description of the world. That science actually aims to come up with theories that are tested and thereby when they're, when they're tested and they're confirmed over a long period of time, we can say that that theory actually describes the way the world is. Um, add, add to this the claim, as I think I already uh, alluded to it, that what science and scientific theories are actually designed to do is to give us a true picture of the world. Uh, scientific non-realism uh, is the idea that scientific theories do not and do not intend to provide a true picture of the world. Rather, even the best scientific theories only give us, uh, as far as we know, useful fictions models that help us manipulate the world and do things practically in the world, uh, but they don't necessarily and are not even intended to describe reality. Um, A good way of illustrating uh, this and illustrate the relevance of this debate, uh, in my classes I often contrast the Ptolemaic, the old Ptolemaic view of the solar system with the Copernican view, right? Ptolemy is the guy who had this geocentric view of the universe where the earth is at the center and all the planets and stars are revolving around the earth. Right. Um, And then Copernicus comes along in the in during the Renaissance and he turns that on his head. Right. And he says, no, 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 no. Uh, The sun's at the center and all the planets and stars are revolving around around the sun. Now, one thing I tell my students and they. um, and this sometimes uh, blows their mind. They don't. They don't realize this. Uh, you know, we we all know that everybody today, well, at least most of us anyway, believe Copernicus has it right, not Ptolemy. That that are at least close to right. Um, and probably that's right. I'll say, okay, fine, that's right. But when this debate was actually taking place in the Renaissance, the shift was made from Ptolemy to Copernicus. Uh, but not because Copernicus had any data or evidence that Ptolemy lacked. They both had the same empirical data, uh, and yet this shift was made. Why? Not because there was any data. Again, not because there was any new information that Copernicus discovered that uh, said, oh, this is the right theory. Uh, no, no, it was, it was made on purely aesthetic grounds. Um, it was made because Copernicus's theory was, was simpler. And that was, that was the reason the shift was made. Now, maybe today we have more evidence that confirms Copernicus. But back in the day, it, uh, uh, we didn't have any data. So, so what's the point of all this? The point of this is that, uh, at least back in those days, uh, either one of those theories would have served practical purposes. You could navigate the ocean with Ptolemy just as easily as you could navigate the ocean with, with Copernicus. And so the scientific non-realist says all scientific theories, at least large-scale theories anyway, are like that. They're just useful fictions. How do we know, and they might say, how do we know that Copernicus won't be overturned tomorrow by some new theory? And we all find out that Copernicus was totally wrong and that the new theory is radically different from both of those earlier theories. So we can't know that, right? Science is constantly changing, right? All right. And uh, as far as more science than Chapter 6, so are scientific explanations um, limited only to natural causes or do they deal with the supernatural? And uh, the authors talk about methodological 
uh, methodological naturalism. Too many uh, syllables in there. Uh, no, it's okay. a uh, now, This question may have a lot more uh, direct relevance to contemporary uh, apologetics, which I know is an a, a important concern. Um, methodological naturalism is the view that legitimate scientific explanations may only appeal to natural causes and an appeal to a supernatural cause for some phenomena in the world would be by definition not a scientific explanation according to methodological naturalism uh methodological naturalism is advocated um here's where it comes into play with apologetics is advocated as a reason to reject what we call the intelligent design movement which is a very popular uh, and powerful movement i believe in in uh, Christian apologetics, which uh, uses uh, evidence of design in the in the universe and in, in biology uh, as a uh, premise and an argument to uh, the existence of, of God, who's the great intelligent designer, right? Uh, but if methodological naturalism is true, uh, then ID theory is not scientific. It, it would, uh, insofar as it talks about non-natural causes, it would be anyway. Uh, so uh, ID theory would be in trouble as a scientific uh, theory uh, if methodological naturalism uh, is, is true. Uh, both Christians and non-Christians, by the way, embrace methodological naturalism. And uh, I know the author who defends it in my book may not be happy with me at this point, but I, I think there are pretty good reasons to reject methodological naturalism. Um, in my own mind, it's, it, first of all, it begs the question, uh, against uh, the intelligent design theory by assuming that nothing that happens has a supernatural cause before any investigation is ever uh, undertaken. Uh, indeed, this is why many critics of methodological naturalism think that methodological naturalism actually presupposes metaphysical naturalism, where metaphysical naturalism is the view that there just is no supernatural reality. Uh, this is synonymous with atheism, basically. Also, and maybe, maybe more important, uh, I think uh, methodological naturalism assumes, uh, well, let's, let's just make an assumption. Let's assume hypothetically that some phenomenon that happens in the world really does have a non-natural cause, God or an angel or whatever, right? If we adopt methodological naturalism as our method of doing science, then that's going to prevent us from ever knowing the truth about that phenomenon. Uh, in my mind, that's just bad epistemology. Okay, so um, so there's no place at all for anything supernatural. They would just, what appeared to be a supernatural miracle, they would ascribe some natural cause somehow to it. Uh, yeah, maybe I need to be a little careful here. Um, there, As I said earlier, there are methodological naturalists who are Christians, and most of those I'm aware of, uh, like the author uh, in, in the book, uh, do believe in miracles. They They will... They will say that they believe in things like the resurrection of Jesus and so on. They just believe those can't be items of knowledge that can be investigated with any kind of scientific methodology. They're just things that are taken on, on faith. Um, okay. But, but of course, you could use this if you were so inclined as a, a reason to rule out the supernatural, sure, if, uh, if you were an okay. agnostic and, or an atheist. And you'd have just pure naturalism then. Right, right. Without the M before it. <laughs> exactly, yeah. All right, and now we move into uh, metaphysics here, and the author for Yes, There Are in Universals is Paul M. Gould, who I had the pleasure of interviewing a couple months ago. I saw that. Mm -hmm. Yeah, so on a, a couple of his books. So what are universals, and do they exist, and what is nominalism? And then this would be a really good—this has a lot to do with faith for centuries now, so if you could— oh, sure. Absolutely. Um, faith uh, my students find this the most difficult chapter in the book, and it because it deals with this because those are things that are very abstract. At least it seems that way, but it, but it does have some practical uh, relevance and significance. But uh, a universal is uh, an abstract entity. That means it's it's not physical. It's not material. It's an abstract entity that exists outside of space and time. Uh, that exists necessarily. Uh, and that they are, here's a mouthful, multiply instantiable. That is, they can exist in mm. more than one place at one time. Examples of universals would be uh, numbers, like the number one, number two, 
uh, but probably uh, more commonly discussed in, in, the, in the literature would be things like properties, the property of uh, being brown or being tall or being sweet or being the president of the United States. These are all properties. Uh, relations would also be examples of universals, uh, being to the left of, being taller than, uh, being smarter than. These would be examples of relations. And um, the debate over universals arises mostly out of our desire to explain the resemblances between things. So take uh, two, two dogs, right? Maybe one's a St. Bernard, right? Big old uh, monster of a dog. And then uh, a dachshund, like the dog that, that I have at my house, a dachshund. Uh, they're both dogs, but they're very different, right? But they're also similar. Let's suppose they both are, are uh, brown in color, let's say, right? They have a brown dog, two brown dogs. Well, what explains their similarity? What explains the fact that they have that similarity along with other uh, similarities that, that they might actually have? Well, um, one explanation for, uh, or and the, very, the, um, the uh, explanation that has a very long pedigree going all the way back to Plato is that um, they're both brown in virtue of the fact that they uh, both instantiate a property, a, a, a universal called brownness, right? Fido is brown, right? The St. Bernard is brown and uh, I don't know, uh, Rover, the Dachshund is brown. And they're both brown because they both instantiate a property, whereas a pro where a property is seen as this abstract entity that can exist in more than one place, right? It's in it's in uh, Fido and it's in Rover, right? And uh, and they're real, according to the Platonist, the, the follower of, of Plato. Um, these universals really exist. They're real entities that exist outside of space and time, like like the number one really exists, and it, it exists in every uh, possible world. There's no imaginable world in which the number one does not exist, and there's no imaginable world in which brownness does not exist, even. Uh, crazy as this may sound, even if there are no brown things in that world, right? Hmm. You have to distinguish brownness from brown things. Uh, so philosophers who, uh, who embrace the existence of universals like this are called Platonists. Uh, Paul Gould, you mentioned him a while ago. He's a Platonist. He defends that in, in this book. Uh, and then uh, philosophers who deny the existence of universalists they're called nominalists. That, so that's what nominalism is. Nominalism is the denial that there are universals. Now, as far as Christians uh, go with this, most Christians who embrace Platonism, and that's probably the majority of Christians emb embrace something kind of like Platonism, uh, many of us will uh, argue that from a Christian perspective, these universals, these properties and relations are uh, ideas in God's mind. And that's how we account for them in a theistic uh, framework. Okay. And so what is really significant for the believer or for theology or for apologetics? Uh, well, it's only going to be indirect, but, 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 uh, but not necessarily insignificant. Well, one thing that I like to point out is that this debate may have ex uh, very important relevance for, uh, for ethics. In my mind, that's the most important practical application of this. Um, if, if we don't have universals, we're not going to have any essences. Essences would be a sets of properties shared by things of a kind, like human beings have the essence of humanness, right, or being human. And uh, if nominalism is true, then that literally means there's no such thing as humanness, no such thing as humanity. There's just that thing, Dennis, and that thing, Steve, right? And they have some similarities, but there's nothing that joins us, literally that joins us together as the same kind of thing. And so if there are no universals, it seems like there's no such thing as uh, essences like humanity. And then what becomes of uh, ethical concepts like human rights if, there's, if there are no humans? Hmm. Okay, but then what would the nominalists say um, in response to um, what the... Uh, the Platonists are saying this is uh, th these properties that these two dogs share. And they would mm -hmm. say, no, no, no. Yes, we agree that they're both brown, but. Yep. Yep. Uh, this, this gets into some tall weeds uh, if we go too, too much further. But, but uh, many anomalists, uh, there are different kinds of anomalists. In fact, there are 
Uh, I can't even count how many types of nominalists there are. There are, there are dozens of different versions of nominalism. And, and in my mind, that, that's a sign that uh, they can't all agree on, on what the, the answer to your question is. And, uh, that, and there really isn't a, a widely agreed upon nominalist theory for explaining why, why uh, Fido and Rover uh, have these resemblances. Uh, but one very popular answer, fair, fairly popular answer, is that um, uh, is they reduce what we call properties to membership in, in sets. So Fido and Rover are both brown because, because they both are members of the set of brown things. Right. But then that still leaves unanswered the question, what is brownness and what and why are those two things in the set of brown things and not the black uh, German shepherd? Why isn't he in that set? Well, you can't answer that question without talking about brownness. Uh, and then you're talking about brownness distinct from set membership at that point. I hope that makes sense. So okay. that's not a good solution. Uh, if you ask, if you ask me. Okay. Uh, so, yeah, that's that's about the best they can do in my as far as I can tell. So you're a Platonist on this one? Uh, yeah, yeah. And um, uh, probably more radical Platonist than some, some of my contemporaries uh, would be. But, but, but yeah, I'm, I'm definitely in, in that uh, camp. Okay, I'm, I'm still undecided. <laughs> it's a tough one. And uh, certainly uh, there are some theological questions that come up. I know one of my favorite uh, philosophers, uh, William Lane Craig, uh, is a famous Christian nominalist who I don't know how he answers some of these questions, but but he rejects Platonism because, uh, well, for for a number of reasons, but but one reason is because of how do you explain God's properties, right? We attribute properties to God. Uh, we say God has properties like being omnipotent and omniscient and all good and things like that. Well, then, are God's properties distinct from Him? Do they pre-exist Him? Well, that didn't make sense from a Christian point of view, right? So I will have to admit that as, as a Christian Platonist, uh, this is a tough theological question that that um, I'm glad that Paul Gould uh, ha has answered it in one of his other books. <laughs> All right. All righty. And in Chapter 8, um, the mind, is it just synonymous with the brain? Is it, mm -hmm. So is materialism right or is immaterialism right? Yeah, if you good, could good dive into those. Yeah, this is one of my favorite chapters in, in the book. It's one of my favorite topics in philosophy. It's, you're talking about the so-called mind-body problem, right? The problem of explaining the, the nature of the mind or consciousness. Uh, throughout history, most people, uh, Christians and non-Christians, have held to some form of substance dualism. This is the idea that the mind and the body are two distinct substances. The body is a material substance, and the mind is an immaterial substance. Sometimes we call this a soul, right? Excuse me. Today, most philosophers, with the exception of, of most Christians, are materialists. They hold that the mind is just the brain and, and the brain's functions. Um, and in my, in my opinion, and I, I'm, I'm sure most Christian philosophers would agree with me, it's very difficult to account for the mind in material terms. The mind and the body seem to have very distinct properties. Uh, the mind, for example, has the property of intentionality. That is, that is, uh, intentionality is a property of uh, the mind's, uh, to use uh, uh, some language that some philosophers have used, uh, ofness and aboutness. Right? We we don't we don't just have beliefs. We have beliefs about things. We have uh, desires, but not just desires. We have desires for things, like like pizza. Right. Uh, and, and so on, right? And so mental events like desires and beliefs, mental properties, uh, reach out beyond themselves to other things. Philosophers call this the property of intentionality. But it seems hard to attribute this property to material things. What, what would it mean to say that this rock, for example, is about this other rock or is for this other rock? That seems like not nonsense talk. And so for that and a host of other other reasons, most Christians are, are, are dualists of various kinds. Yeah, there are some uh, Christians who are materialists, though. I don't know what what their conception of the afterlife is mm -hmm. or the, the miraculous or anything else. Right. Yeah, that does uh, become very interesting and, and, uh, and complicated. Um, there, are, there are some Christian materialists who... Uh, who, uh, for various reasons, some of which is because they're convinced by arguments for materialism, 
that the mind is just the brain. I'm not sure why they're convinced, but but they are. Uh, and but yeah, but the biggest problem they have, and they will admit this themselves, is trying to account for a Christian view of the afterlife that that involves, uh, especially involves resurrection from the dead. And what do they do with all the biblical data about uh, the intermediate state, right? Um, some of them come up with some real, some really interesting theories to try to explain this. Some, some deny that there is an intermediate state that that, that, is, that they take that biblical language and some of it interpret it non-literally, or some of them just ignore it. I don't know, but but yeah, they they they, uh, they say there is no intermediate state, and that um, the body, the human person who is just their body, is recreated at the resurrection out of out of whole cloth, you might say. Um, I'm not sure how you account for personal identity over time, right? Is that the same person that's resurrected that died? I'm not sure how you do that without something that continues across that gap, right, between death and resurrection. Uh, others talk about uh, maybe uh, after we die uh, or when we die, we're instantly given some kind of new body that's invisible to, to you and me. Uh, and that body continues until the resurrection. Then I don't know. Then you wonder why there needs to be a, another resurrection later later on. Why does it just continue on like that? So yeah. so yeah, there are some Christian materialists uh, who are convinced for for numerous reasons to hold that view, but uh, I don't see it as being consistent at all with uh, Christian uh, eschatology uh, for for reasons we just stated. All right, and uh, free will. Determinism. Is free will compatible with determinism? So this is one of the chapters uh, you contributed. Mm-hmm. Contributed the, um, And how does uh, moral responsibility fit in? Yeah, yeah. Um, well, I personally think uh, that free will and moral responsibility are compatible with at least some forms of determinism. I'm probably in a, a minority among Christian philosophers on this. Uh, but, and of course, it's a very controversial topic. Um, so, of course, determinism is the idea that everything that, that happens to us and everything that we do, even the things that we do that we think are intentional, like choosing to go here or go there, um, are determined by prior causes. Um, <coughs> excuse me. But uh, on the other hand, incompatibilists is the opposite view. I know one major version of incompatibilism is called libertarianism. That's not the political view. This is a view on on free will. Um, Libertarians deny that free will is compatible with determinism. And they hold, uh, and the reason they they think they're incompatible is because they hold some version of of what's called the principle of alternative possibilities. Um, In order Mm -hmm. to be free and responsible, said the libertarian, uh, I must have genuine, open alternatives when I make a choice. (laughs) <laughs> one one uh, perhaps cheesy way of illustrating this, suppose I'm standing or, or, or I'm in my car at a street corner waiting uh, and, uh, and I, have to go, I have to go either left or right. I'm at a T, let's say. And uh, suppose, uh, for the sake of argument, that I turn left. According to the libertarian and the incompatibilist, that choice was a free choice and a morally responsible choice only if, only if I could have gone right. In the same circumstances, right? That's the principle of alternative possibilities. Uh, compatibilists like me uh, think that alternative possibilities are not necessary for moral responsibility. That we can be morally responsible, even if uh, I'm at that corner and I turn left and I could not have gone right. Uh, as long as, as long as I'm doing what I want to do when I go left. Right? Mm. So, according to compatibilism. As long as I'm choosing in accordance with my values and my desires, well, excuse me, at the moment, then my choice is free, free enough in a way to be morally responsible for what, for what I do. So it all comes down, uh, the debate here really all, in my mind, all comes down to uh, whether or not a compatibilist like me can uh, make sense of being morally responsible without having these alternative possibilities. And... Um, in, in the book, I borrow a thought experiment from a, a, a really famous philosopher named Harry Frankfurt. Um, and, and this is all over the literature on this topic, uh, by the way. You can't hardly miss it if you read about this at all. But uh, Harry Frankfurt asked us to imagine a scenario uh, like this. He says, 
Um, imagine there's a man named Jones and a mad scientist named Black, right? Black and Jones, right? And uh, Black really wants Jones to vote for uh, his favorite candidate. It's called Candidate A uh, in the upcoming presidential election, right? And, um, and he's implanted in the mind of Jones, this computer device that can monitor all of Jones's thoughts. And, uh, and doesn't always do this, but whenever Black wants to do it, he can push buttons and the device not just will monitor his thoughts, but will actually make him form intentions to do certain things, right? Like, like vote for the right candidate, right? So uh, Black uh, doesn't want to manipulate Jones into voting for candidate A if he doesn't have to. So he just monitors Jones's thoughts and beliefs and desires from a distance and just watches what happens. And when Jones finally goes to the voting booth to cast his vote, uh, uh, Black is monitoring the whole thing, and, and Jones decides to vote for candidate A. But Black was right there with his fingers perched over the buttons, ready to, to uh, manipulate uh, Jones if he has to, right? So, so, so Frankfurt asked two questions. One, uh, could, in that scenario, could Jones have done anything other than vote for candidate A? And it seems like the answer is uh, no, he couldn't have done anything else. So he lacks alternative possibilities. But secondly, was Jones in that scenario, the way I described it, morally responsible for choosing candidate A? And it seems that the answer is clearly yes. Right? So morally responsible, moral responsibility, no alternative possibilities, bam. So that, that's that's where I stand. <laughs> okay, but um, what is does this have anything to do with the, the free will um, sovereignty debate between, say, Arminians and Calvinists? Uh, oh yeah, if you're if you're a compat, you know, I told you at the beginning that I that I embrace reformed reformed uh, soteriology, right? I'm Calvinist, so so this fits right in uh, to uh, to my perspective on that. If if you're a Calvinist, you're almost certainly going to be a compatibilist. Uh, now, there are some libertarian Calvinists. I'm not sure how they make that work. But um, but most Calvinists are very sympathetic to compatibilism. And that's part of my motivation for wanting to defend this view or my theological beliefs. But uh, but I think there are good independent philosophical reasons to, to hold to hold this view like that. All righty. Yeah, that one sounds like it's it plays out in the church quite a bit. Oh, I mean, absolutely. it's more relevant than some of these others. Absolutely, and uh, and I let me be quick to add to what I to that what I just said that my my discussion of that thought experiment with Black and Jones that's definitely not the final word on that topic. There's a vast literature going back and forth on this. Uh, who wins? You'll have, you'll have to be the judge if you read all of this. But um, I'm convinced the compatibilist has the upper hand on on this score. But maybe just a little bit. Okay, okay. All righty. And uh, chapter 10, last chapter of the book, uh, The Arguments for the Existence of God. Oh, wow. Okay. So this is a um, big one. This is my favorite chapter in the book, I think. Um, it, well, maybe besides the one that I wrote, wrote, to, wrote in. But, uh, but uh, yeah, the arguments for God's existence. There are, as you probably know, there are a lot of good arguments for the existence of God. I've seen them other, other folks on your show uh, defend some of these. Uh, in the book, Joshua Rasmussen defends a version of the cosmological argument that's known as the Leibnizian argument, which goes traces back to a philosopher named Gottfried Leibniz. Uh, and the argument basically begins with the question, why is there something rather than nothing? And, uh, and then he goes on to show that the best answer uh, to that question is that there's a necessary being, God, who alone can explain the existence of, of other things. Um, I like this argument. It's not my personal favorite argument for God's existence. I think there are others that are just as good, if maybe even better. Uh, I like the Kalam cosmological argument that William Lane Craig defends, along with several others, which focuses more on whether or not the universe began to exist and arguing that it did, and then trying to explain how something can come from nothing, right, uh, without, without God. Uh, and the moral argument, that's probably my favorite argument for God's existence is the moral argument. Um, if I'm not mistaken, Paul Gould uh, talked about that argument on, on your program, right? That, that if there's no God, then then there's no objective moral values. 
but we know there are objective moral values, we can we intuit them, right? We can we can see that some things are wrong and some things are right. Uh, and uh, and therefore, God must exist if he's the only way to explain why there are these objective moral values. Uh, Rasmussen talks about uh, all of these in the book, though he focuses mostly on that, that Leibnizian uh, cosmological argument. The strongest argument against God's existence uh, in very broad terms is the problem of evil. Uh, and in the book, an atheist named Bruce Russell, uh, he focuses in on what I think, I, and I agree with him, that, that this is the strongest version of the problem of evil uh, and therefore the strongest argument against God's existence. And it's the so-called evidential argument from evil. Uh, Russell asks, if God exists, why do some of the horrible evils that we see in the world occur? Some really bad things seem, like, seem to happen, like the kidnapping and murder of little children, for example, as an example he uses, uh, that, that seem like there's no good reason for that. We certainly can't look at something like that, Russell says, and uh, see why God would allow that to happen. Uh, these kind of things seem to be pointless. And um, a good God, if he exists, uh, would only allow evils that serve some greater good, some greater purpose. But these uh, types of things, these uh, he calls them horrors, uh, don't seem to serve a greater good that we can see. And so he draws a conclusion that, that uh, God very likely does not uh, exist. Um, there are a lot of different responses to, to this um, argument. Um, both Russell and Rasmussen, who responds to him, uh, talk about something called skeptical theism, which is a very popular response to this uh, argument from evil, which says that uh, basically says that um, uh, just because we can't see what God's reasons for allowing this evil uh, to happen doesn't mean he doesn't have one. Why? Because given our finitude, given our uh, lack of understanding and knowledge, and even given our our uh, evil propensities, uh, we may not be in the best position. We probably are not in the best position to all to always know whether God has a good reason for allowing these things. God is infinite, infinitely wise. We're finite. He could have reasons for allowing these evils. Uh, even if uh, uh, that, 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 uh, that we might not even be able to know, uh, even if he told us about them, right? Uh, and that, that's basically skeptical theism. Now, Rasmussen talks about that. He, he actually presents a theodicy uh, called the love story theodicy, in which he says that um, the reason why there's evils in the world, even these horrors, is because they play a part uh, even though we may not always know how or why in this grand love story that God is telling uh, with human beings, starting with creation, fall, and redemption. Right, to, to the end. All right. And uh, finally, we've already touched on this a few times, but what else can you say about application in terms of apologetics? Mm -hmm, mm -hmm. Uh, what, what does the evangelist or the, the defender of the Christian faith mm -hmm. What can he or she take away from all the stuff that's in the book? Uh, yeah, I appreciate that question. And I, I want to be up front and say that, that I don't want uh, any potential reader of my book, which I hope there are many, uh, to come away thinking that this was designed as an apologetics textbook. It, it wasn't. But I do believe there's apologetic value uh, in all of it. Um, philosophy asks the big questions. That's what philosophy is all about. Uh, the most basic and fundamental questions that human beings ask. That's what philosophy is all about. What's real? How do we know? Uh, is there such a thing as right and wrong? That re Really? Uh, does God exist? And if so, why is there evil and suffering in the world? And all these other questions that we've talked about and a host of others that we haven't talked about. Big questions. And uh, the answers that people give to these big questions have an impact on the way that we live the choices that we make. For example, if, if you believe in God, that's going to affect the choices you make. If you don't believe in God, that's going to have an impact on the choices that you make. And I would say the same thing about every one of these questions that, that we've asked. And the reason is because uh, these questions and the answers that we give to them uh, provide the structure for our worldview, uh, the way that we look at the world and our place in it. 
And so Christians, I think, should study philosophy and perhaps read this book if they're so inclined in order to better understand their own worldview and to be able to engage intelligently with those who hold non-Christian worldviews. Uh, in this book, you're going to get both sides of every argument. You're going to get what somebody who might disagree with you says and what the person who might agree with you says. And you can weigh the arguments for yourself and, uh, and then use that as ammunition for engaging people in important discussions. All righty. So it's not so much answers, but just getting familiar with the arguments and being able to have intelligent conversations That's right. can make all the difference. Very good. Exactly. All right. All right. So much good stuff there. Well, I'm Dennis Messler. Um, You've been listening to The Charge. We've been dealing with the topic of epistemology and metaphysics, the debate over various core issues in uh, philosophy and how it relates to Christian apologetics. We've been with Dr. Stephen Cowan, who is a professor of philosophy and religion at Lincoln Memorial University. So, uh, Dr. Cowan, thanks so much for joining us today. Thank you. Appreciate it. All right, and then follow the link below to check out his book, Problems in Epistemology and and Metaphysics, an Introduction to Contemporary Debates. That book is available. All right, so um, peace to everyone.